from Springfield, this is State Week, a program of analysis and commentary on the events that made news this past week in Illinois state government and politics. I'm deeply concerned. Uh, we do not have enough shelter as it is in the city of Chicago. Uh, the city has not told the state where they would like us to put our resources to build new shelters, and we need to make sure that we're uh, not ending shelter capacity as the city is now planning to do at the end of winter. After Governor J.B. Pritzker said he was deeply concerned that Chicago is not planning to add more shelter beds, Mayor Brandon Johnson's team hit back. A Johnson spokesman said there are 1,300 municipalities in the state of Illinois of which Chicago is one. The state has the authority to fund, stand up, and operate a shelter in any one of those municipalities at any time that it chooses. Well, Chicago and Illinois are dealing with a migrant crisis. Thousands have been sent from the southern border, but finding shelter for them has been a challenge. We've discussed that several times on the show, but making the situation worse has been Governor Pritzker and Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson continuing to spar over various issues with this. And we're going to talk about the current situation coming up. We'll also hear about a recent court decision upholding a pension consolidation plan in the state. That and more coming up on State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield. Our panel includes Charlie Wheeler, Professor Emeritus and former Director of the Public Affairs Reporting Program at the University of Illinois Springfield. Charlie's also been a longtime Statehouse reporter and observer. And our guest this week, Dan Petrella, a reporter for the Chicago Tribune. And Dan, it's always good to have you back with us. Glad to be back. We heard at the start, Dan, the latest from both Pritzker and what Johnson's spokesperson had to say there. What do you make of what is going on right now? And kind of set the scene for us. Not everybody listening to the show, of course, is in Chicago. They may not know some of the deadlines and current pressures that are happening there. Sure. So, you know, this is uh, just the latest in an ongoing um, uh, series of incidents stretching back to late summer, early fall between the mayor and the governor regarding uh, the sheltering of the migrants. Um, nearly 35,000 of whom have have arrived in Chicago now since August of, of uh, 2022. Um, many of those folks have have moved on to other destinations or to more permanent housing, but um, there are still uh, many in uh, in city run shelters. There are a couple dozen of those. Um, and the city has recently said that they're going to stop opening new shelters. This was after the state in the late fall announced that they were going to help uh, not just help, but they were going to entirely fund and um, get set up this uh, proposed tent encampment for migrants uh, on a city uh, a city proposed site that ended up having all sorts of environmental problems. Uh, the state had to step in and shut that down. And since then, the city has not, um, at least in the, the state's telling, offered another site to build that tent camp and has just instead said, we're, we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to look to, um, you know, private philanthropy and other other venues to to provide shelter and you know essentially as the mayor spokesman said if the state wants to open uh, a shelter here or elsewhere they can go, just go ahead and do that yeah Charlie I think the last number I saw we're closing in on 35,000 people have been uh, sent to the state of Illinois especially to the Chicago area since uh, this all began all from the uh, southern border that's a lot of people in fact we're talking about a you know, pretty good sized city for the state of Illinois. 
so not surprising that a problem does exist with this. That is a lot of people to try to find shelter for and the other needs that they have. Yeah, and, and the point about the numbers is interesting. I looked up, I went to the 2022 American Community Survey numbers for Illinois, and we have 102 counties, right? Well, out of those 102, only 39 of them have more than 35,000 residents, according to the survey. And the survey also lists more than 1,400 municipalities, cities, villages, towns, so forth. Only 52 of them have more than 35,000. So we're talking about not just a, a good size, but we're talking about one of the largest, if, if all the migrants were incorporated into one village, one of the largest political entities in the state. And the difficulty, as I see it, is that the mayor doesn't really want to get engaged with this. And this maybe is an unfair criticism, but it strikes me the city council spending all this time debating over what kind of a resolution they should pass uh, condemning what's happening in Gaza. I'm thinking to myself, if you guys would concentrate on trying to deal with the migrant crisis, uh, it might be more important because I'm guessing that the folks who are running the war in Gaza, uh, Netanyahu and the Hamas leaders really aren't interested in what the Chicago City Council might say or do. That just struck me as, and maybe it's an unfair criticism, but it struck me as kind of a waste of time in the sense of dealing with what the real issue issues are in Chicago. And part of it is, how do we handle these folks who are coming? Now, the mayor has backed off a couple times on this, we're going to kick you out after 60 days. And I think the next deadline comes on, on February 1st. And I can't imagine that the mayor, for his progressive credentials, is going to say to 1,700 people or whatever the number is, okay, time's out, you're out on the street. And the, the difficulty is that the, the migrants really are in a, in a difficult situation. They have no way to earn money legally because the work permits haven't come through yet. As I've said probably a thousand times, we should just automatically give them the work permits because the jobs are there waiting for them, but they can't do it legally. And that makes it difficult for them to find housing because if I'm a landlord, I'm not going to rent it to somebody who says, well, I, I don't have my work permit yet, but I'm hoping within a couple months I'll be able to pay you. No, that's not going to work. So I think it's, it's an issue that the solution isn't there, but I would be willing to bet money that the Johnson administration is not going to be so heartless as to throw 1,700 people, probably most of them kids, out on the, on the streets on February 1st. Dan, is, what, what is going on here with Pritzker and Johnson? I mean, I, I, we, we've seen political leaders who may not always see eye to eye, may not even get along or like each other in some cases, but they somehow find ways to work together. It's at least from where I sit, and I admit I'm not there covering it the same way that you and others are, but it, it sure looks like these two are not on the same page. Am I off the mark on that? No, they very much aren't. And and the governor, you know, anytime he's asked about this, talks about how there are always going to be differences. And when there are, there are disagreements, we work through them and that he, you know, personally has a good relationship with the mayor. But, um, you know, obviously there have been a whole series of these instances over the last several months now where they are clearly 
clearly not on the same page. And I think part of the problem is that um, as much as both of them, I assume and, and think, want to do what they can to address this situation, uh, neither of them wants to be fully responsible for uh, for it and for the blame that comes along with the problems that might arise from you know not handling it well. I think that there there is a lack of a coordinated strategy as there has been for months and maybe you could even argue years now going back to when you know Lori Lightfoot was still in the mayor's office. There's sort of been this line drawn where where the city is responsible for the shelter situation and the state is responsible for um, you know, a, a bulk of the funding and for sort of the, the um, support services that folks are receiving, the city essentially is saying, you know, at this point, we've done as much as we can on the shelter front and other other municipalities need to chip in. The The state needs to, to do more on the shelter front. Um, but, you know, I think that one of the issues as well is that the mayor did not include enough money in his budget for the cost of this, this crisis. You know, the, the amount they budgeted, I believe, uh, was about $150 million, which was, if I recall correctly, roughly half of what they were actually expecting it to cost. Still claimed the budget was balanced. Uh, one of the issues now is that, um, you know, there's a potential that they're, they're running out of the money that's been allocated for this just a couple months into the, a few months into the, the year here. Well, Dan, Dan, you mentioned the fact that uh, Johnson brought up this idea that, hey, there are other municipalities, people could be resettled elsewhere, and the governor should focus on that. Uh, I know that the state has made some money available, has talked about this idea, and maybe there, and I think there have been a little bit of uh, resettlements happening around the state, but w I can see that most politicians, mayors of many like downstate communities, probably feel the same way Johnson does. I'm not sure I want to take on this political risk. Is, is that fair to say, or do you see something else happening? Yeah, I think that's part of it. And part of the state's pushback to the city has been that, you know, all of the money that's been invested in setting up the, the infrastructure that does exist to deal with this crisis is based in Chicago. That's because that's where, you know, the majority of, of people are coming, notwithstanding these buses that are trying to evade the city's regulations by dropping off folks in random suburbs and, and things like that. Um, you know, it makes a certain amount of sense when you're dealing with a crisis, I think, to try and have a centralized place to deal with it, a place where people have access to, to resources that might not be available in, in smaller communities throughout the state. Um, you know, there's more mobility in the city for people who don't have access to, to cars and things like that. Um, you know, that's not to say other towns couldn't step in and do some. Oak Park has tried a little bit, for example, but near west neighbor of the city. Um, you know, and, and something that I thought was interesting is Johnson in his post-council press conference the other day, um, you know, made a statement about how the state made $40 million available to other towns and and nobody really took it, which um, isn't entirely true because other towns did get a little bit of that money. But the part of the story that was missing was that $30 million or thereabouts of that $40 million went to the city of Chicago to help it deal with the crisis. So, um, you know, I think it's just... Uh, it's become a really vexing situation, and you know it's sort of like a game of chicken where each side is waiting for the other to to go first, um, and it's just not resulting in a situation where we have built enough capacity for the people who are here. Charlie, I'll let you weigh in on this and what what we were just talking about there. From where I sit, from two hundred miles away, it looks like the mayor's trying to avoid responsibility and he's trying to avoid the tension that exists within the 
existing Black and Latino communities who argue, and rightly so, how come you're paying so much attention to these newcomers when we have people in our neighborhoods who've gone years without getting the kind of help that they need and the kind of services that they need? And I think that's a, a, true, a true comment, and it reflects on kind of an overall approach that should, should have been taken and needs to be taken to provide for not just the recent newcomers, but for people who've been on the margins for some cases, generations. And I think ultimately we're gonna to have to, as I've said again, I repeated it earlier and I've said many times, it's gonna depend on the federal government coming up, not necessarily with more money, because I don't think getting more money out of the current Congress is possible, but getting the work permits to allow these folks to, to get employment, be able to go out and get housing on their own, maybe move out to the suburbs, maybe move to a downstate community that needs workers. And that in my mind is a long-term solution. But I think the, the notion that uh, one of uh, Mayor Johnson's aides said, well, the city, the, the, the state can build these shelters wherever it wants. And I don't think it works that way. And I think as it was said earlier, the infrastructure is there in the city of Chicago. The kind of services that these folks need is available there. And it's not the case in many other communities. Dan, we've uh, got the legislative session pending here. It just got underway. So over the next few months, I mean, we, we know that uh, some funding for migrant services is going to be needed. Do you have any idea of what's coming there? Have you heard any more as far as what lawmakers and, and the governor might be talking about? Well, the governor is seeking um, a supplemental appropriation bill to sort of uh, replenish money that they shifted around in the Department of Human Services budget to um, to cover some of these costs. I believe it was around $160 uh, million that they announced back in, in November. Um, there's been some resistance uh, most publicly from Senate President Don Harmon to addressing the migrant issue as a, as a standalone. Um, you know, he made the same point that I think we were making earlier about how, you know, th these problems that the migrants are facing reflect longstanding problems in, in Chicago and many other communities throughout the state. And um, his point of view is that if, you know, and the point of view, I think, of, of many other Democrats in the legislature is that if the, they're going to try to address the issue of the migrant funding, that they should do it as part of a more um, sort of global uh, attempt to address housing issues and some other problems that, that the migrant crisis has really highlighted. I did want to mention, too, uh, when we talked about Brandon Johnson and uh, you know, questions about what's going on there and his leadership through this crisis, there was a poll that came out at the end of this week and uh, getting some attention. And you can always, uh, you know, take them with, with a grain of salt, how will these polls look. But this had to do with his job performance. Now, he has not even been in office a full year yet. This poll surveyed 500 res registered Chicago voters earlier this month. Margin of error of plus or minus 4%. And it only listed 20% of the people saying that Johnson's performance was either excellent or good. About 70% said he's doing a fair or poor job. And that was across racial and ethnic groups, too. So, Dan, I mean, again, you can't always, you know, govern by polls. But 
that would get my attention if I was Brandon Johnson, that the, he's the one looking at this point uh, weak on this issue, and, and it's certainly hurting him as he, uh, like I said, as he gets close to finishing his first year in office. Yeah, and I think, you know, even if the margin of error were double or triple that, it would still, you know, the numbers would still be be concerning for them. Um, I think it's hard for folks at this point to, um, you know, really point to big, big victories that he's had since taking office back in May. Um, and I think that this migrant crisis and, and his handling of it um, has really been sort of an albatross for him. Um, you know, it's it's um, just an intractable problem, but he hasn't, I think, displayed the kind of leadership that that many folks are, are hoping to see from him on the issue. I think that the the um, rounds of sparring with the governor aren't necessarily helpful to perception of how how he's doing in the job. And yeah, I think that they they are going to need to be looking for some some political wins that they can point to here pretty soon because it's um, you know hoping hoping for a a reset when the calendar turns to twenty twenty four has not happened so far, and it's running out of time for. Um, you know, him to use the, uh, if excuse is too strong a word, but, or the reason as he did throughout the summer with some of the stuff that he'd only be in an office for a short time, you know, um, or obviously he's not at the one year mark yet, but it's going to be here before we know it. And, um, I think there's a lot of, uh, room for improvement in a lot of people's minds. Charlie, would you agree with that? I mean, the, the you know, can he turn this around? I mean, certainly he's only been in office for a while, so a little while, so he's got time. But uh, th- this would be a concern, and I'm sure it is, to his camp. Yeah, publicly they're saying, oh, we're not worried about it. You know, that's just one poll, and we've got all these great plans. But, yeah, I think they have to be worried. They have to be worried about how it makes him look as a leader and as someone who is decisive and someone who who has the ability to manage a huge enterprise, which the city of Chicago is. And it's, it's a, a big difference between being a, a community activist and a, a leader for the Chicago Teachers Union, an organizer, and actually then coming in office and trying to actually run the place. And I've used this in the past, and my apologies if, if this offends him, but you look at Pat Quinn as an organizer, as a guy who could bring issues to the fore, uh, he was almost unparalleled in his ability to do that. As a governor and actually executing, well, he wasn't quite so good in that. And maybe there's there's a parallel there to Brandon Johnson. He was excellent as a community organizer, but now when he's faced with the nitty-gritty details of actually managing the city, he's still trying to get the feel for the job. And I get the impression that he hasn't really fleshed out a group of advisors and aides who have the the skill or the background or the experience to be able to help him accomplish this very difficult task. And I'm thinking there's probably a lot of people in Chicago who are thinking back saying, well, Rahm Emanuel wasn't so bad. Richie Daly was pretty good. Charlie, there was also uh, one of the individuals who ran against Johnson, did not win, uh, but Cam Buckner, he's a state rep from Chicago. He penned an op-ed this week uh, talking about uh, that the city should demand federal help for migrants or that the city of Chicago should forego hosting the Democratic National Convention. Now, that's kind of an extreme point to make, but uh, you thought he he made some points in there that were worth uh, consideration. Yeah, and and I think what 
what Representative Buckner was was alluding to or pointing out in his op-ed was was along the lines of, of what was mentioned earlier that it's a housing problem. And, and one of the things he said was uh, in his op-ed, and I'm quoting now, calling this a migrant crisis creates the narrative of Chicagoans versus new arrivals and allows people to look past the humanitarian obligations that have already existed and run to their corners without listening. It creates a sensation as, excuse me, it creates a sensationalized riff between two communities that already have a complicated relationship. And he goes on to say that uh, black communities have been benignly neglected for generations. The, the, the fight over crumbs is misleading, he says, because half of nothing is still nothing. And he concedes that it's not likely that the city is going to cancel, but he's trying to highlight the fact that Chicago has a housing problem. And some of the suggestions he offered is that there should be new housing on city-owned lots, uh, change some of the zoning laws that say you can only build single-family houses. You can't have any duplexes or triplexes, which would certainly help the problem. So he's he's got some good thoughts there. And I think he, he makes a, a good point that it's not just the migrants who are worried about housing being cared for, but the black community on the west and south sides of Chicago has faced this problem for generations. Yeah, I think it was a, pr a provocative, a provocative proposal. I think um, Representative Buckner is a really, really sharp guy. Um, he's made a pretty good name for himself in, in his relatively short time there in Springfield. I think sort of one of the missing pieces or, or you know, flaws in the logic there maybe is that. Um, the Republicans who control the U.S. House of Representatives would uh, love nothing more than to see Chicago cancel uh, its invitation to host the DNC. I think that that would score big political points for them and for their presumptive presidential nominee and, and head of their party, Donald Trump. So I do, I do think, though, highlighting the issue of uh, housing speaks to what we were talking about earlier about the desire among among many to address the migrant crisis in a more uh, global or, or holistic kind of approach. A couple of minutes left here, and uh, Dan, I'll go back to you because you covered the Supreme Court decision recently, last couple of weeks here, uh, had to do with local pension funds. We talk about pension debt for the state a lot, but these are these local pension funds involving uh, police, fire, these emergency workers. Uh, there are a lot of different funds out there, and a few years back, the state decided to consolidate these, kind of build as a money-saving move. Uh, so fill us in on what the court had to say. What was, what was the argument against this that took it to court, and then what did the court have to say about this law? Sure. So what the what some of the um, participants in those local funds argued was that the uh, the consolidation of their assets for investments um, and the the taking away of their local pension board's control over how their money is invested was a an unconstitutional um, diminishment of their of their benefit of being able to elect local representatives to invest their retirement funds. Um, the court did not uh, did not agree with that interpretation of the state constitution's pension protection clause, um, and really clearly laid out. And I think it was pretty clear um, from listening to the oral arguments and the questions that the justices were asking back in November, but um, they, the court unanimously uh, said that voting for representatives is not the kind of uh, financial benefit that the pension protection clause is there to protect. 
that that clause of the Constitution is about, at the end of the day, how much money the retiree is going to get in their monthly, you know, monthly check from from the retirement system, not about sort of ancillary issues. Um, and it relied on previous court precedents that that even said like the level of funding that the legislature appropriates for the for the statewide funds or th that sort of thing is not uh, is not protected by the Constitution. What it is protecting is the benefits paid and and other things related to how those benefits are calculated. And Charlie, just a few seconds here, but you weren't surprised by this decision. No, not at all. Because as Dan said, the court has consistently ruled that the the pension clause that says benefits cannot be diminished or impaired relates basically to the kind of benefits, the, the health care, monthly pension payment you're going to get. And in the opinion, the unanimous opinion written by the chief justice, uh, the one line on page nine of the opinion says, and this is a quote, simply put, the 2020 amendment to the pension code has no impact on plaintiffs receiving their promised monetary benefits. And that's the bottom line. It doesn't matter who makes the investments. And an AP story said that the, the actual, the, the, the two statewide accounts had, had reduced the funding gap by roughly 20% for the firefighters and, and for the, the police. And so it appears to be working. All right. Well, let's go to our notes from the field. And uh, Dan, we'll go to you first. Well, uh, I just wanted to note that I attended what was the first uh, public uh, face-off up here in the Chicago area between two Democrats who are vying for a seat on the Illinois Supreme Court. Uh, Justice Joy Cunningham, who was appointed in 2022 to replace retiring Justice Ann Burke, um, is running for a full 10-year term with the backing of the Cook County Democratic Party. And uh, she is facing a challenge from appellate judge Jesse Reyes, who um, has been on the bench for, for many years as well. And it's a really interesting race between two very experienced uh, jurists. And it also highlights some of the, uh, I think, tensions we were alluding to earlier between the the Black and Latino communities and their and their political leaders here in Chicago. A part of, of Justice Reyes's case for, for why he should be elected is that there has never been a Latino justice on the Supreme Court. And the idea of giving voice to that community and being the seven judge panel being more diverse and inclusive is is important. Okay. And Charlie. Well, earlier this week, the Illinois State Board of Education approved a budget request for the coming fiscal year, asking for $653 million more in funding for pre-K through high school public schools. Uh, that may be problematic as according to the governor's office of management and budget, the state is facing a $891 million budget deficit for the fiscal year that begins on July 1st. And the governor is going to announce his budget, uh, I believe, on the 21st of, of February, so about a month from now. One of the things that is, is in there is $350 million more for the evidence-based funding, which is a, a program that was enacted several years ago that analyzes the money going to a school district based on what its needs are relevant to its its demographics, its enrollment, number of kids who are below median income level. And the idea is that ultimately the state is going to provide for all these schools 90% of what they need to be at their adequacy level. But it's going to take, it would take another two and a half billion dollars for this evidence-based funding to reach that goal. 
as I said earlier, since we're already facing a deficit, we're not going to get that. One of the other things that I found interesting, the proposal calls for $35 million in new funding for something called supporting newcomers, and that would be available to cover such things as hiring bilingual teachers, uh, buying materials written in the students' native languages, before and after school programming for kids and their families. Basically, this is in response to the, the migrant crisis that we're facing. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of State Week. Our panel included Charlie Wheeler and Dan Petrello with the Chicago Tribune. You can find our show where you get your podcasts through the NPR app and at nprillinois.org. Just look for State Week. And join us next time. I'm Sean Crawford. You've been listening to State Week, a program of commentary and analysis of events in Illinois state politics and government. State Week is produced in the state capitol by public radio station NPR Illinois. This is IPR, Illinois Public Radio.